6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 10 through 14. Book of Jeremiah, got about chapter 11 last time. The spiritual giant of the Old Testament is a, a very, very readable guy. We know him as the weeping prophet, but uh, and indeed he feels deep, deep passion, and we'll see that continually come up. He's a credible human being. And one of the things that I'm hoping we'll gather as we go through Jeremiah is his humanity. One thing we're going to find over the next several chapters particularly, that the prophets were no supermen. Just because they were called of God and just because they had many special spiritual gifts uh, did not remove them from feeling pain, anguish, loneliness. In fact, the most effective ones felt that very, very deeply, and Jeremiah is regarded by many scholars as one of the most spiritual men in the Old Testament. And we see that come through in his very, very vibrations of his soul, and it shows up in his writings. It's not lofty and eloquent like Isaiah, but it has a, an earthiness all of its own. And uh, he is uh, very, very real. And I hope he becomes that real, even though we're obviously laboring with a translation that's some distance from the original Hebrew, and we're uh, uh, scholars uh, work hard at it because there's many constructions in the language that are cumbersome, but fortunately doesn't really affect our understanding of the text. But even in this translation, you can't help but feel the, the throbs of his feelings. We're in a section from chapter 11 through about chapter 20 that's basically narrative. It's stream of consciousness stuff. He he comments and, and edits and so forth, but it's also quite, uh, there's a lot of narrative. So we'll try to sort through that as we go. It's almost like a private diary, if you will. So it's a lot of messages and feelings and reactions and almost a dialogue with himself and with the Lord. And, and he puts words in the mouth of the people he's dealing with, you'll, you'll see. It's very much like a private diary all the way through. And, uh, or a journal, if, uh, as, as we sometimes uh, use the term. The best thing to do is just jump in. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear the words of this covenant, and speak unto the men of Judah, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not, the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do them according to all which I command you. So shall ye be my people, and I will be your God, that I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is, this day. Then answered I and said, So be it, O Lord. That one last sentence, uh, actually, we got a five verse um, sentence there. So that's why he took his sentence structure from Paul, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but um, quite a sweeping 
declaration by uh, the Lord God of Israel. It's kind of interesting. We won't take the time. Uh, it's very easy to spend a lot of time in some of these passages, and I, I can that would bog us down, and I might bore some of you to death. But I'll throw out those places you can run with. If you were taking the trouble of looking at Deuteronomy 11 and 27, 28, and 29, though that area in Deuteronomy, 11, 28, chapter 11, verse 28, uh, chapter 27, verse 26, and chapter 28, verses 15 through 19, and Deuteronomy 29, 20 through 21, you can get that off the tape if you really want to track that all down. But the point is, if you compare that, you will discover that Jeremiah is here given the same curse and the same covenant that was articulated, articulated by Moses. There's a clear link in concept and language and so forth between this. In fact, the Lord himself links it up. That's going to be a contrast, by the way, because the work that he's going to perform later, we're going to see, will contrast to make his work that he did for Israel, taking them out of Egypt in the Exodus, is going to pale in this insignificance compared to what he's going to work yet for coming, and he's going to talk about that. One thing to be very sensitive to, though, all through the Old Testament, we speak of the Lord God of Israel as he who delivered them out of the bondage of Egypt. The whole exodus from Egypt is sort of a, a sign, an identifier, a major achievement, in a sense, or a, a mark that's used all through the, the uh, scriptures. And here it is also. We're going to shortly find a place where he says what he's yet to do is going to eclipse that. The whole Babylonian captivity and all of that will be even more visible and more known, so to speak, than the exit of Egypt. You'll see that come up uh, shortly. But uh, um, several things here. Uh, he's obviously speaking to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the curse, as I say, is the same curse as the covenant. And he says, verse 4, which I commanded your fathers in the day which I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace. Strange idiom. They weren't an iron furnace, but, you know, literally, not, not, not in this literal sense that we see, say, in, uh, what is it, Daniel chapter 3 or whatever. Um, the, um, but we have an iron furnace here in the sense that it was their, the place where they were refined, purified. And that phrase will also be used in the tribulation idiom that we see in Scripture frequently. And, of course, the two big issues here are obey my voice and do them according to all which I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God. That's the basis, obedience. God is expecting obedience. He expects that of us, too, but a slightly different dimension. I'll let you worry about that until you get to the gospel, into the, the epistle of John. Oh, yeah. you, have a, you have things to do, too. Uh, your your work is to believe on him that was sent. I suppose it sounds like it's easier, but it's also more condemning. Because it is easier. Huh? But that's a whole other issue. I mean, it's condemning if you don't, you know. Anyway, we'll struggle on. Obey my voice and do them, verse 4. It's interesting that the um, whole Exodus period is seen as the period during which he's promulgating the Mosaic cover. There's another phrase in here that's interesting. In verse 5, he says, I will perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers and um, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. You've heard that phrase, right? It only occurs twice outside the Torah. Here and in, um, excuse me, three times. Here 
in chapter 32, verse 22, and Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 6 and 15. So twice in Jeremiah and once in Ezekiel is the only place that a phrase occurs outside the Torah. Land flowing with milk and honey. Okay. Um, and after this very sweeping um, mandate by the Lord, Jeremiah says, you know what he said? Amen. That's what he said. It's translated, so be it. Okay, verse 6. And the Lord said unto me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, nor walked every one in but walked, excuse me, but walked every one in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. And the Lord said unto me, A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words, and they went after other gods to serve them, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers." Now, verse 11, 11, 11, chapter 11, verse 11. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. Boy, that must be scary. I mean, how glib we are, because we know when we petition him in the name of Jesus Christ, he hears us. We only do that when we're in trouble. The theory is that one reason we're in trouble so much is the only time he hears from us. But how scary it must be to be in a position where God won't hear. That must be really frightening. I will not hearken to them, he said. Verse 12. Then shall the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem go and cry unto the gods unto whom they offer incense, but they shall not save them at all in the time of their trouble. For according to the number of the cities were thy gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, have ye set up altars to that shameful thing, even altars to burn incense unto Baal. In the Hebrew, there's a play on words because the word shame and the name of Baal are very similar words. They sound almost the same, and there's some wordplay, but do you get the idea? Interesting, up back in verse 9, there's an allusion to a conspiracy, and it turns out before this is all over, we're going to discover that there is a secret conspiracy and uh, against Jeremiah himself in a very literal, uh, immediate sense. But, of course, the term here is broader. We do know that, you know, earlier in Jeremiah's history, that under Josiah, that good king, there was a reforms and, and, a, and a reaction to the evil days of the, his predecessor, Manasseh. But even then, we infer from Jeremiah, there was a lot of secret resistance to the reforms of Josiah, so that when these evil kings rose to power, it was very, very prevalent for the people to return to idol worship. Now, um, there's another uh, uh, flavor throughout here and subsequent passages, but it's an idea that I want to plant in your mind. And that is, is that no piety or religious position comes by osmosis or by being just in a collective group. All repentance to God and his ways has to be individual 
individual. Now, they're collectively being judged, but it's very important for us to recognize that just because they were in that group was no excuse, that God held them individually accountable. There's another dimension that I've been struggling with, and I'm not quite sure how to uh, get across. You know, it's easy for us to sit here and, you know, sort of work our way through the book of Jeremiah and um, sort of regard it as a historical quaint oddity, you know, thousands of years ago. And, you know, somehow when we see them being chided for taking little idols and lighting incense to them, and somehow we may feel very aloof and very distant from that because I suspect there's a relatively small number of you in this room that have little idols on a little altar in a back room of your house, okay? I'm presuming that in this guardians particularly, I'm not certain, but I have a reason I feel that there are not too many of you that are lighting offerings to some kind of idol. And so it's easy for us to feel distant or uninvolved or removed from the burden of Jeremiah's message. Uh, that's tragic because what we might very well pray is that the Lord helps us identify and remove the idols in our life. Now, you don't have to have a little bale or something in your home or something else to be an idol worshiper. Every one of us are subject to things which displace God in our life, that, that, that clamor for our attention, clamor for our obedience, clamor for our focus, involvement, commitment. They can be hobbies, they can be pursuits, they can be anything that stands between you and God is in effect in the role of an idol. And your forms of worship can be really quite casual but very, very effective. The real questions we need to continually ask ourselves the more vivid your passions, the more intense your hobbies and interests or pursuits, the more risk there are in them that they can be a form of uh, intrusion into that relationship which God would have of you. Um, I've heard uh, someone say, and it rings in my ears, that it's not important enough just to have Christ to be the most important thing in your life. He should be the only thing in your life. And um, you know, in a very, very real sense, anything I've met is, is 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 risking the very thing that destroyed this nation. Now, there's another dimension to this, and we'll be getting to that too. Is that uh, we're dealing here not only with the individual spiritual problems, and we'll see that continually to reoccur, because these these oaths, these commandments, this obedience was individual, not just collective. At the same time, we're also going to see Jeremiah weep because he's presiding over the death of a nation. We'll be talking a lot about that as we go. Um, but moving on, um, we got down to about verse 14. Verse 14 is one of those heavy, heavy verses. Jeremiah gets this commandment from the Lord three times in this book. Three times God tells him to do a strange thing. He says, therefore, pray not for this people. Whew. That's heavy. I mean, it's glib to read that, but just think about it. The Lord saying to Jeremiah, pray, therefore pray not for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me because of their trouble. That's rough. That's rough. God would tell you, you know, don't waste your time. Don't pray for these people. We're going to find that three times in the book. Now, there is a view not necessarily a correct one, but a provocative one, which argues, particularly out of a passage from Hosea, but several others, 
that there is a precedent condition for the second coming of Jesus Christ. I don't mean the rapture of the church, that can come anytime, but for his power and his interruption of man's history to save Israel, to shorten those days, which if they were not shortened, all flesh would be uh, lost. And that precedent condition is that Israel acknowledged their iniquity. And the word in many passages is a very specific singular iniquity, not iniquities in general, plural, a specific iniquity. And there are some scholars that believe that what it refers to is the rejection of the Messiah. And there is a concept prevalent among some Hebrew scholars, Christian scholars, Christians, but that are Hebrew trained, that, um, that until Israel acknowledged their rejection and petitioned his return, that, that then he will wait three days and come and interrupt the battle that occurs in Basra. This all emerges out of Zechariah and in Hosea and elsewhere. And if that, that, that scenario intrigues you, you can find, I think we went into that in the Zechariah studies, so you can get the Zechariah tapes and in chapters 12 through 14 in that range. I think we got into this whole uh, view. And of course, it leans on a number of passages and, and uh, it's not necessarily correct, but it's provocative. But it does explain why Satan works overtime to intrude on the Messianic Jews' growth in Israel. Because if he can wipe out that remnant before they petitioned, he concept at least could just to thwart the will of God or the messianic plan or however you want to express it, which of course is interesting warfare. Aside and aside, therefore pray not for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me because of their trouble. Verse 15, what hath my beloved to do in mine house, seeing she hath wrought lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from thee? When thou doest evil, then thou rejoicest. The Lord called thy name a green olive tree, fair and goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult he hath kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. We're going to get into Romans 11 shortly anyway, so I won't take the detour now. But there are many scholars that believe this. Notice he's using several different idioms. First is the virgin in the house. Now in verse 16, he's using the olive tree. Paul picks that up and runs with it in Romans 11. The whole concept of viewing Israel as the olive tree and the grafting and so forth. He, he builds upon that idiom. In uh, Romans 11, though. Here in Jeremiah, there's no visibility to Jeremiah that he was that God would eventually use that same idiom in Romans 11 and talk about a wild branch being grafted in, the Gentiles, if you will. But Paul picks that up and runs with it. And his famous chapter, Romans 11, which I encourage you to read, and I think we're going to, for some other reasons why we're going to get into it before the evening's over anyway, I think, or if not this time, next time. There's almost a, an idiomatic springboard here from Jeremiah 11:16. This, this, this using that, uh, that concept. Um, many writers feel it. Paul used this as his text. With the noise of great, uh, too, great tumult, he hath kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. And what Paul talks about is that the wild branch is grafted in. Verse 17, And the Lord of hosts who planted thee hath pronounced evil against thee for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. He uh, makes reference to the house of Israel as well as Judah. 
Don't be confused. The house of Israel over a hundred years before was judged for that and taken into slavery. And the, the subtle thought here that Jeremiah is that's in front of us is, is that uh, Israel was judged. Judah will be judged no less. In fact, in concept more so because they should have had the benefit of realizing how God treated Israel, the northern kingdom, the house of Israel. They went into idolatry, didn't listen, were warned, didn't listen, and were taken into slavery. A hundred years later, Judah still doesn't listen, doesn't repent, so they're going to do the same thing. And of course, the message that should echo in our ears is, what about the United States? We were called by God in a very special way as a very unusual country and with a very unusual mission and mandate. And as we looked towards him, even as a nation, in our own, in our own way, in those early years, he blessed this nation incredibly and used it as a, a vehicle throughout the world. Do we qualify today? Can we call ourselves a Christian nation? I don't think so. And um, yeah. one of the questions that hangs heavy upon us all is, what's the scenario? What's the horizon hold for us? Unless we recognize that the path of our blessing, just as Israel and Judah, was our being called by his name and being uh, uh, mindful of his blessing, as we turn to become a... Uh, secular, humanistic society, rebellious against all these original ideas, we should not be surprised to reap the whirlwind. And as we look around our horizon, it is scary. As we look at the federal deficits, which drive the trade imbalances, the fact that we're not competing in the world economy, the fact that we have more debt than net worth in our corporations in recent years, that we have uh, an unprecedented amount of household debt in terms of our producible income. As you look at the percent of G gross national product as a percent of our, uh, the, the percent of that that goes to a debt service, it takes that as any economist who's been looking at it historically is shocked and frightened and concerned. As we see ourselves beset by our enemies, we an honest, informed appraisal of our uh, military security is scary, very fragile. In fact, we're facing in all fronts an armed aggressor who has shown his mettle um, and who is got, does not have poor technology and is armed by a factor of several times at least where we are in each, in each front. We're in really serious trouble. And if you look at our society and watch it unwind, the ethics, the uh, pestilence brought about by our uh, excesses, doesn't take much insight to see parallels between the tragedy that Jeremiah foresaw with his country and the burdens you and I might have if we can see with clear eyes the, the uh, predicament of our country. The good news is, I don't mean to sound gloomy, let me give you the good news. God has not told you not to pray for this people. We don't have the injunction that Jeremiah did. To the best of my spiritual understanding, you are encouraged throughout the New Testament to pray for your leaders and to pray for this country. I think that's more important than the ballot box. I think it's more important than a thousand other things you could spend your time on. 
And those of you that might be led to have prayer groups or participate in prayer groups that you're already in and somehow allocate some portion of your energies to praying for this country, that God might send a revival, restore us spiritually to some awareness of what made us great in the first place, or more precisely where our blessings came from, then maybe he will allow us some time for our kids to enjoy what you and I have. I really believe that God's greatest pain is the pain of ingratitude. I think that's really what I hear here in terms of what he's saying to Judah for all that he did for this country, this nation, Judah. And what are they doing? They're running around paying homage to these brazen contraptions and carved wood and, boy, the ingratitude he must feel. Anyway, verse 18, uh, last part of this chapter is... Um, a very specific, you know, we talk about this, you know, the conspiracy earlier, the Lord using the collective broad generic sense. Here we have a very specific crisis. It's the first of personal crises in Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah was an aggressive prophet of God, and it should not surprise us that um, he was the victim of uh, plots against him. This one is pretty tough. Uh, I might point out, uh, Anathoth was his hometown, okay? Uh, it was the home of the priestly house of Abiathar, who was a friend of David. But the house was deposed by Solomon and who supplanted with the house of Zadok as the high priest. So the priests of Anathoth were sort of, you know, uh, on the outs, if you will. And uh, so they've been out since the Solomon's time. The people of Anathoth, and that included Jeremiah's friends, his family, and the people in his hometown didn't just reject him. They were collectively involved in a plot to assassinate him. Can you imagine that? I mean, you know, you can disagree with a guy's preaching, but uh, that's going a bit far. But that's what Jeremiah is facing here. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.